0: Don't focus so much on the specifics of your business that you accidentally neglect best practices for building a business in general.
1: Welcome closers, today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you, this is season three on Profit. I'm your host Jordan Wayla and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Max Nussenbaum, the former CEO of Castle, a property management startup based in Detroit, Michigan, that was building a technology platform to change the game. At their peak, they raised around close to $4 million from investors grew to be Michigan's second largest property management company. But in January of 2018, they ended up winding down the business. Why? What can we learn? What's it all about? Today, we're going to talk to Max to do a post- Mortem, my mind is blown that Max is actually willing to um, jump out in public and do a post mortem on his baby this quickly. So, Max, thanks in advance and thanks for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I'll tell you, I would not have been ready to do a post mortem in February, but enough time has passed. I feel, uh, I feel ready to kind of hopefully, you know, share some of what we learned in a way that can help others.
1: All right, well, let's start here. Let's just kind of walk through what the original vision was. How would you
0: describe it? The um, idea for Castle came out of direct experience that me and my co-founders had buying a rental property, becoming property owners in Detroit, getting really embedded in the community of other rehabbers and investors. And we basically noticed two things. One is that we saw pretty much everyone, uh, owners and tenants alike, complain about the quality of uh, the property management they were able to find, especially in the single family market, which was where we were focusing as investors. And we also looked at a lot of management companies and noticed that a lot of them were kind of being run, you know, the same way they maybe had been 40 years ago, there'd been a little bit of technology introduced, but we felt like there was an opportunity to uh, use technology to both make things operationally more efficient, but also just provide a way better user experience for property owners and tenants. So that was kind of the germ of of the idea. And that overall vision uh, stayed really consistent throughout Castle's lifetime, even as you know, some of the practical details of the business, you know, grew and changed.
1: I feel like you guys were one of the earliest, if not the first, of the kind of tech hybrids that came into the market. There's been a wave of companies that have followed, ranging somewhere from being tech first, service second, to inverting that, but having a pretty heavy tech focus. When we initially met was around the time of the inaugural PM Grow Summit. We had you out, you gave the talk, described the vision, and a lot of these smaller mom and pop operators were pretty dismissive, kind of like, eh what could these guys know? Young kids, bunch of technology, et cetera. There was definitely some pushback on the level of wondering how big the opportunity actually was in the market to get some real leverage out of technology without, without building up folio effectively. So having been through this, what is your now kind of seasoned opinion on the actual leverage and opportunity that technology represents for, let's say, uh, Mid-size operator, somebody that's managing 500 to to a thousand doors, isn't going to go raise a million bucks. I mean, what's the reality versus kind of the false promise of tech? In your opinion,
0: broadly speaking, I think there's two different ways to think about how tech can help a like services business, and I think you know our initial thesis involved both ways. And I would say one proved out to be very right, and one proved out to be less right than we thought. And those two ways are one, tech as something that enables purely enhanced operational efficiency. And secondly, tech is something that just enables a better experience for your customers, uh, your users, everyone else you interact with. And I would say tech for operational efficiency in the property management world, there's promise there. But frankly, I don't think that is going to have a significant impact on anyone that hasn't achieved really significant scale. So, you know, 5,000 units plus, that was a big part of our original thesis, we saw that you know, Definitely, tech made us a little bit more operationally efficient, for sure, but that a lot of the ways where that was really promising just, frankly, weren't really going to have much of an impact until we were at kind of the next order of magnitude of scale. I think that tech as a way to enable a better user experience uh, is still really promising and is something that can can help anyone, um, but you just have to remember that. And I think something that, that we definitely learned, especially in the property management world, is that... The quality of the user experience, broadly speaking, is dependent on so many other factors that are not necessarily directly how your customer interacts with your product, right? So for example, the, the quality of the uh, third-party maintenance providers that you might be contracting out with, which is like extra hard uh, you know, to control. I think there's still a lot of promise for tech to enable better user experiences, but that certainly isn't uh, the only piece of the puzzle. If we
1: wind back to the the story, let's say kind of the the zenith least in terms of funding when you raised the the larger round, I guess this would be like a series A. After that happened, presumably there was a pro forma, there are expectations around growth, etc. What did you come to realize specifically as it relates to scale? And at what point did you realize that there was going to be a delta between your trajectory and the scale required?
0: Yeah. So that was our our seed round in January of 2016, which was a little over $2 million from Coastal Ventures and and some smaller VCs. And I think basically the high level kind of story of Castle is that we spent 2015, launched the beginning of 2015, grew at a moderate but steady clip. We're kind of like, you know, still kind of figuring out the business. And then starting that winter, we did the Y Combinator Accelerator, had really gotten a lot of the business nailed down Grew really fast. We doubled our units under management in about three months from about 250 to 500, and then raised the money, continued growing pretty decently. And then that summer really kind of hit this inflection point where, uh, and this was kind of, I would say, the first, in retrospect, big mistake that we made was that our operations actually just weren't prepared to support the level of growth that we had experienced. We'd kind of been a victim of our own success in some way. And we failed to notice that up front. I think one of the tricky things with property management is that. Because a lot of times, the true operational burden of managing a certain number of units, I don't think isn't going to be really felt until six months, eight months, a year into actually managing that portfolio. Because, you know, first few months, there's probably going to be fewer maintenance issues, because you, you know, did a walkthrough when you took on the property took care of anything that was an issue. And so nothing else is going to break for another six months or There's kind of a honeymoon period with the property owner where they're excited about new management. They're just kind of letting things be. And then six months in, they start getting on the phone more often. And so kind of all of these small things combined where all of a sudden, around the summer of 2016, our operational workload really ramped up. As a result of this growth, we'd experienced you know three to five months ago, and we just didn't have the operational capacity to support it well. And that was at a point where then a lot of our customers started experiencing longer wait times than we would want to return phone calls or emails um, and was kind of the first sign of trouble. Something I would do differently if I were starting the business again is after uh, that period of growth, I would have taken a step back, kind of intentionally not grown the business for a few months and just really made sure that we were, going to be well-equipped to, to handle that growth kind of on an ongoing basis.
1: But it's a catch-22, right? Because you have to grow. That's the nature of taking on funding Their Expectations, ramp, et cetera. So you were trying to do both in parallel,
0: both growing. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, just specifically speaking to the, the venture-backed kind of tech element of the business. You know, actually, right after we raised the money would have been a period where uh, it actually would have been fine to not grow for a bit if we'd wanted to. You know, if thinking if you kind of view your your funding life cycle as like you've got you know you raise some money, then you kind of can have a quiet period. Then you need to show strong growth going into a next fundraise if that's part of your plan. And so, in retrospect, it actually would have been a really optimal time to do that. Quite frankly, you know, this was our first startup; we didn't weren't really familiar enough. We, I think we made two mistakes. One is we weren't familiar enough with the dynamics of venture capital funding to realize that that was really a very viable option from a fundraising standpoint at that time. And the second was just not realizing that our seeming operational capacity was actually a bit of a mirage because the operational workload of managing the same number of units was going to ramp up over time.
1: The lag, basically. Exactly. Got it. So what's your commentary on the market that you picked? In retrospect, what's unique about Detroit? Is that a meaningful factor in the story? Would you have picked a different market?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that... Definitely, in retrospect, I would have gotten out of Detroit sooner or not gotten out, expanded, open a second market, we wouldn't have shut down the the Detroit business. And it's important to note that we were operating in all of southeastern Michigan about a a 45 mile radius. So it's not like we were just in the actual city of Detroit, we were in a lot of the suburbs as well. But I think that definitely we experienced just like a 20 to 30% operations and satisfaction penalty from being in Detroit, from everything from a more difficult tenant pool, properties that were very old and hadn't been well maintained, difficulty dealing with city agencies, customers who had gotten screwed by all the kind of scammy stuff that was going on, I would say between, well, it hasn't totally stopped, but it was especially prominent between the crash and let's say 2014. And so therefore were predisposed to kind of distrust us and and not, um, you know, and I don't, I don't blame them for that, but it made the, the burden of supporting those customers higher. At the same time, I think it's sort of hard to answer that question because Castle was a very natural outgrowth of a problem we discovered in the course of this sort of story of living our lives. When so we moved to Detroit, we became real estate investors there. It wasn't like we were sitting in an office, analyzed a bunch of different markets, decided property management was the best one for our business, and then analyzed a bunch of different geos to figure out where to go. And I think that's often the, the entrepreneur story. It's not like we ever were in a situation where we were just like picking a market. I think definitely I would have um, expanded beyond Detroit sooner if, if we could do it again in retrospect. Uh, at the same time, though, starting in Detroit, I think that the need there was so great that when we were uh, kind of three nobodies with no other properties in our portfolio, that that need was part of what enabled us to get our first, you know, 20, 30 customers where in a more established market, maybe the barriers to entry for a new firm would have been higher.
1: Got it. Okay, so it's helpful to have you put some parameters on it. Maybe it's a 25 to 30% penalty because of the market. But you gave the caveat earlier that there's really two primary drivers here. There's the efficiency play, there's the customer experience play. The efficiency play is going to be reflected, and it's a cost component. And In a financial model, it's driving down cost. The customer experience, the potential there is around growth, right? Better product, network effects, et cetera, if you can get to scale, when you look in, in retrospect, or maybe you knew at the time, how big was the gap in terms of the growth that would have been required? And I guess it's, it's not even a fair question, right? Because the answer to that is more probably related to the next round of funding
0: rather than actually the kind of cash flow constraints that your average small business is subject to. So I think there's a couple components to this. So one is definitely, I think early on, we were too focused on the cost operational efficiency side, not as focused on the great customer experience side. Like our initial theory for Castle was that we were going to be able to be sort of cheaper property management. We sort of shifted that theory to just try to be better and not worry about being cheaper. And I actually think and I actually think, if we had done that from the beginning, actually been a higher price product, but then been able to offer correspondingly better service, that would have been more successful. We did try to make that shift, but at that point... It was too late to really have a a major impact. And so that might have even resulted overall in having fewer doors, but more revenue, more satisfied customers overall. Then the other big piece for us, again, was I think that was our biggest challenge. It was less about the absolute rate of growth and more about just our churn rate, the number of customers who were leaving the platform. And that was something that certainly a lot of the issues behind our churn rate were self-inflicted operational issues for sure, like cause customers to have bad experiences and leave. But also something that I've since seen really talking to a ton of other people in the industry is that property management just has a baked in higher churn rate than a lot of other uh, types of businesses. Because, And the way I think about this is that I think it's really hard to create an amazing property management experience because like, when a customer is having a great experience with you, they're usually not interacting with you that much. Like things are on autopilot. And just by the nature of the business, the m- most touch points with customers are negative because when things are going well, it's like, great, everything's going well. And every time you interact with someone, it might be just something negative that's it's not your fault. If a customer had a property that was just having a ton of maintenance issues, they might not have blamed Castle for that maintenance. Maybe we were doing a good job fixing it. We didn't cause those problems, but that person is still not going to be having this amazing ten-star experience where they're going to tell all their friends how amazing Castle is when they think Castle's pretty good, but they're like losing their shirt on their portfolio. And that's a problem that it was certainly compounded by operational issues that were just not an amazing experience for customers. But uh, now, you know, talking to a lot of other people uh, in, in the industry, and, and maybe the listeners will, will empathize with this. I think. When your job is to sort of be insurance and the bearer of bad news, it's hard to always be this amazing service that your customers love.
1: Sure. I think people can certainly relate to churn as related to to sell-off as well, just market conditions. Yep,
0: yep, absolutely. Yeah, and that was a factor for us too. Where was churn hovering
1: either on a monthly or an annual basis there towards the end?
0: So towards the end, it was around 3% monthly, and that was about 1% sale and 2% customers leaving. And it had had spikes of of being much higher, you know, about eight months to a year before about being, you know, around double that every month. That just makes it that makes it just really hard to to grow and to tell. I mean, we still were growing, but makes it really hard to grow and makes it really hard to tell a story of how you're going to grow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So churn is the silent killer, right? Churn dictates the 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 ceiling and the wall that you will hit eventually. Based on wherever you're at in terms of your size and your current churn rate, there is a, there's a definitive cap on how big you can ever get because at a certain point, your growth will simply replace your losses. So it's definitely worth paying attention to your churn rate. I am curious, what did or didn't work for you on the growth side? What did you, what did you learn there?
0: Yeah. Well, and the one other point I just want to make about churn too that I think people sometimes forget is it's also just really demoralizing. I think it's easy to, to sort of do this post-mortem uh, or analyze any business and talk mostly about sort of these practical concrete factors. But for sure, I think the fact that that was demoralizing to the whole team definitely affected our ability to build the business as well as, as we wanted to in ways that I'm not sure I can completely tease out, but I'm, I'm very confident it had an impact. I think momentum and good things happening kind of begets more momentum. And when you lose that momentum, I think it can be really hard to get it back. In terms of growth, the business was always from day one built on a ton of word of mouth. Um, and that continued really up through the end. I mean, one thing that, you know, even in periods where we had a relatively high churn rate, we found that it was really, really sort of unevenly distributed. In other words, we would have a certain group of customers who maybe were really affected by some operational issues because it only takes, you know, sort of one drop ball for someone's experience to turn really bad. But we might have a whole other group of customers who just weren't affected by it at all and still love Castle. And so um, we were still getting a lot of word of mouth through, through, up to the very end. We were doing a lot of partnerships with realtors and other other like people who are selling homes. And I definitely any listeners who run management companies that do not also have an attached brokerage definitely would encourage them to check this out. What we found is that any realtor who's selling homes to investors wants to be able to refer property management. But usually, one, they have trouble finding people they really can recommend, just who they think are doing a good job. And then so many PMs have attached brokerages that the realtor doesn't want to recommend a PM with an attached brokerage because they need to know that that person's going to come back to them as the realtor when they want to expand their portfolio. And so we were kind of able to, to play up that, and we we're getting a, a lot of referrals that way. And then um, the other piece for us was this is a something that we got right that a lot of startups don't is just boots on the ground. I mean, we were we went to different meetups, we were part of community events, we kind of really got out there and, and saw people, and I think that. It's something that some startups like, you know, think, oh, we just got to be behind our computer, like doing AdWords and stuff. But especially, you know, in the early days, like that can have a, a, a real impact. And you only, it'd be a really delayed reaction, right? In other words, like, it's rare that you're going to go to a meetup, meet an investor and immediately close them there. But we'd go to meetups, we'd meet people. And then five months later, they'd call us and say, hey, you know, I'm, I, you know, wasn't ready then, but now I'm kind of thinking about switching management. And I remembered meeting you guys, you know, back then and, and we're, we're ready to talk to them. Does that work, work for us, too? I do think, though, having now kind of taken more of a, a step back and looked at the industry as a whole, you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, there's a couple other um, tech-enabled or, or venture-backed property management startups out there. I think if anyone is going to make this business model work, it's going to be through just the pure acquisitions model. That was something we always thought about. but. Um, it's just dependent on being able to raise a lot more capital than, than we were able to at the time. Ultimately, that's gonna be the only way to scale this business and make it make build a really, really large management company is just to be buying other small management companies.
1: Well, so that's interesting. so you you say that, but you also didn't talk much about traditional digital marketing paid acquisition uh, on the organic side. Is that something you guys dabbled with as well?
0: Yeah, and so we did we did a lot of that too, and it worked really well for us. But what we found there was that there was a real cap because, For most of those digital marketing efforts, basically your cap is you can acquire some pretty high percentage of people who are actively looking for property management. You know, we were the number one search result, number two, one or number two moving back and forth search result for most of the common terms around property management in the Michigan area. We had dedicated landing pages for every municipality in our service area that were some of the top results for those. We were the top buyer for AdWords. I don't know, I don't know what percentage of those people we were getting, but I'm I'm pretty confident it's a pretty high amount. But ultimately you'd look and see, okay, I'm making this up, but this is maybe close to what the number was. You know, there are a couple hundred searches for you know Detroit property management every you know week, let's say. And so realistically, you know how many of those people are actually ready to buy, you go down and down. And even if you're gonna capture a lot of those people, there's ultimately a cap there. And to get, you're never gonna be able to grow faster than the rate of people actively looking for what you're selling through at least like the traditional digital marketing techniques. And so they worked well for us, but they, that was, that resulted in a pretty steady amount of new growth um, that, that we felt like we weren't going to be able really to be able to ramp up beyond that. And definitely from talking to customers and other people in the industry, my, I mean, there's no definitive research on this, but my intuitive sense is that above 50% of people who are in the market for property management are not just sitting down and like doing a search and then talking to some different companies. A a ton of it is happening through recommendations and, and word of mouth, because it's in some ways, a kind of commoditized industry. And a lot of it is based on trust and reputation.
1: Do you want to network with other grade A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Grow Summit, held in April in Austin, Texas. Check out at pmgrowthsummit.com. learn what the difference is between hope and actual results it's called taking action that's what we do collectively at the pm grow summit by bringing in world-class speakers world-class attendees get more information at pmgrow com. talking about some of the operational points of differentiation that were tech enabled when you talked about better customer experience creating delight etc what were some of those strategic wins that you were really proud of for the consumer
0: yeah yeah so I'm going I'll, I'll. I'll talk about kind of two. I'll talk about one that worked really well, and then one that didn't work as well. So, uh, one that worked really well was we have this system of on-demand uh, independent contractors for unskilled labor, who we called stewards, and that was basically any on-site task at a property that didn't require a very specialized skill. So stewards would go conduct the group showings, replacing tenants. They'd install lockboxes. They'd pick up keys. It was mostly when properties were, were vacant, um, and that worked really well for us in in a couple ways. One was that that was an area where, and, and you know, the tech platform enabled us to easily uh, have those people assigned to different tasks in our system based on their calendar availability, their geographic distance from the property, um, etc. And so that did result in huge efficiency savings. Um, and it also, we also found it that kind of combined with our broader tenant placement system it enabled us to have a, a really quick moving um, tenant placement machine. Uh, we were placing tenants in an average of three weeks by the time the uh, the business wound down, which was about two weeks faster than the average for uh, the metro Detroit region. Obviously, it's very different in in different municipalities. And I think that was a combination of our listings tools for uh, applicants being really excellent. So you could save your information and apply to multiple properties at once. We were very uh, aggressively remarketing new properties to existing applicants who had passed the screening, and we knew about their preferences, but maybe they hadn't gotten a previous uh, property. We we built a really good tenant facing brand, and we and then this steward program made our showings be really efficient. That was something that that worked really really well for us. I think on the one that didn't work as well was was for maintenance. So we had you know a large group of. Uh, contractors who were on the platform, we built what I think still is a really cool tech platform for communicating, posting and getting transparency around maintenance. And what we found was that property owners by and large really liked the tech platform, it gave them a lot more transparency into what was going on with maintenance. But maintaining the quality of our contractor network was just an ongoing challenge that we were never able to get quite right. Um, Even when I mean, we think we would got it right. And we'd have this group of really great contractors. And then over time, they just wouldn't, they would stop being as good. It was just an ongoing, ongoing battle. Also, on top of that, one of the big lessons we learned there was that early on, we were focused too much on the objective metrics of our contractors performance. Um, And that's going to sound weird. But I guess what I mean by that is like, we would get customer complaints that were you know this issue this maintenance was too expensive. It didn't happen fast enough. And then we would really work hard on that, and we would drive down our prices and drive down the time maintenance took. But the complaints wouldn't change. And I kind of realized and and I no way, look, if if any castle customers are are listening to this, there certainly were up until the very end, many times when maintenance actually was too expensive or actually took too long. So I'm in no way minimizing those very real complaints. But what we also discovered was that, You know, if you're a property investor in California, you haven't seen this property in a year. You you don't really know what's going on with the maintenance. Having maintenance on your house sucks. There's really no unless we fixed it in half an hour for five dollars. Like it's never going to be so quick and so cheap that you're like, wow, what an amazing deal. Uh, maybe it might be like that for some very standard issues, like replacing a door where you can have a good sense of what it should cost. But if it's some weird plumbing issue, you don't know how much that is supposed to cost. You don't know how long it should take. And what we learned was that a lot of, I think what we had to do there was around communication. It was about giving our customers a lot more information and communicating around what was going on better such that we were clearly communicating the value that that we were providing. Because I think often when someone says this is too expensive, what they, that can often be a proxy for trust. And what they really mean is, I don't have the information I need to trust that I'm getting a fair price. And just making it cheaper without addressing that trust component doesn't really solve the problem.
1: Ooh, I like that. Okay. So I'm thinking about positions versus interests. My interest is I want the job done well. My position is you're doing a, a bad job. I don't know if it's the case, but I'm not getting enough proactive communication to make me feel like my interest is being taken care of. So I may even take an irrational position relative to my actual interest. How did you handle communication around maintenance? That seems like a great example of where tech would be. A solution that could actually enable a higher cadence of communications. Think about what property melt is doing in the market and kind of enabling getting bottlenecks out of the way to increase the flow of communication. What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, so I I think that definitely is an opportunity for tech. And it's something that that we certainly did, you know, we had basically this real time uh, platform for uh, issue management that was that was pretty effective. But I think ultimately, another lesson we learned was that sometimes property owners all say they want transparency, but too much transparency can actually backfire. I think a great example is one thing we always heard from customers when we were first starting out was, I want to know more about what's going on in my property in real time. I don't want to wait, you know, till the end of the month to have to find out. And so initially property owners would get a real time notification if they wanted every time a new maintenance issue was created at their property. But we found what started happening was that customers would get these notifications and then we would get all these emails or calls that are like hey just calling to make sure you're going to deal with this maintenance issue and it was like yes, like that's our job like we fix maintenance at your property we're doing it you don't have to call in but but what we discovered was that those notifications were actually creating anxiety or causing people to want to call or or email to make sure we were on the job which actually decreased our ability to be on the job because we were suddenly spending 20% of our time answering these calls and emails and so we later adjusted the system so that owners didn't get a notification until we had already assigned a contract to the job. So by the time they learned about the issue, there was already clear evidence that we were actually doing something about it. And that really helps, but it's always harder to take real-time transparency away than it is to add more. That's a good lesson in it. To run a successful business, you have to give your customers what they want. But that doesn't always mean just implementing exactly the thing they say they want, kind of going back to what you were talking about before between... um, position and, uh, and desire or intention like You kind of have to figure out what's that second order. For example, a customer might say, I want real-time notifications about all maintenance. Usually that comes from a place of, well, my previous property manager was very untrustworthy, didn't do a good job, so I feel like I need to be always monitoring things. But maybe in an ideal world, what I really want is to never have to look at maintenance, but be 100% confident that it will always be taken care of quickly, promptly, and affordably.
1: Mm, Sure, fair enough. So to the degree that I do become aware of it, I want to know that it's being handled well, but there may be a subset of issues that I'd rather not be bothered with in the first place. I do want to get your feedback on... Kind of the underlying elements involved with successful labor coordination around maintenance. I think about the parallels with Uber, for example, where you're you're coordinating these strangers. There's a lot of VC money coming in that's kind of inflating the prices and bringing people in, bringing drivers in in mass. Over time, the subsidy has been eroded. The profile of the social strata of the people that are coming in to be drivers has changed over time. Some maintenance contractors, GCs, you know, particularly the, the smaller guys swinging a hammer, he may charge rates that he could barely survive on, right? You may have a business model that is fundamentally broken, and therefore there was nothing you could do because he set himself up for failure. He was always going to churn out in six months. What do you think philosophically is the opportunity for any of the larger players that are trying to have
0: a scaled approach to labor coordination? First off, I think one lesson we learned pretty early on, which is an example of of how that labor pool for us was very different from Uber, is that when we started, we really thought, okay, follow the Uber model, get as many contractors on the platform as possible, more competition, drive down costs. But what we ultimately realized was that you know a, a skilled contractor is very different from someone who's driving a car, and ensuring quality is a way trickier problem. And so we actually ended up scaling that network back so that for any given you know trade, we would have two to five people who were good at that trade in the network. And that meant that for any one of those people, we were usually going to be 20 to 60% of their workload. And that enabled us to at least have some leverage over them where the threat of losing Castle jobs actually meant something. When we were just giving someone one or two jobs a week, we basically had no leverage to make sure that they were actually um, doing high-quality work, which was a challenge we never fully solved, but it got a lot better once we actually scaled down the network. So that was... Um, that's, I think, an important way that these networks are different from sort of like classic, like Uber-style marketplaces. But ultimately, I think anyone who's trying to really do this at scale, I think I definitely I am not as big a believer in the on-demand labor model for maintenance in property management as I was before. Uh, we brought once we reached the scale where we could keep a handyman busy full time, we brought on a full-time handyman. And the plan was actually to just continue bringing people on as full-time employees, as long as we had enough work to keep them busy a full 40 hours a week. I think, obviously, the independent contractor model makes sense. Like, for something like a roofer, I mean, you're probably never going to have enough roofing work that you can keep one roofer in a location busy 40 hours a week. But as soon as you have enough work that you can fill someone as a full-time employee, um, at this point, I think it does usually make sense to bring them on. Yes, your costs go up. There's some coordination effort involved. But... um, Maintaining quality in maintenance is so hard that I th- I, I'm, I've now become a, a sort of a more of a convert to just be able to exert as much employer control over those workers as, as possible.
1: So that's the cost piece. What about the revenue piece? Did you guys do maintenance markup?
0: So we didn't. I mean, one of the one of the big one of our big beliefs was that most maintenance markups are just fundamentally unfair. They, um, uh, you know, you have management companies that charge a percentage markup on maintenance and then they're in, they're incentivized to get better uh, to you know, not get lower costs. Um, we, we, had a, um, uh, a, a, we did have one source of, of revenue for maintenance, which was that if a customer wanted to do a really large like rehab project that was outside the scope of what we would do, we would refer them to a trusted uh, rehab or a contractor partner and we would get a referral bonus for, for doing that. But ultimately, I think the opportunities for making money on maintenance at scale, which were things that we had sort of just started to look into when we wound the company down, because at around 800 doors, we were kind of at that point, are things like, um, you know, buy a bunch of doors in bulk. And then when your customers need a door, offer them a price that's lower than what they would get at Home Depot, but still higher than what you got when you bought 100 at once, and, you know, kind of keep the keep the spread there.
1: Got it. So... Maintenance markup is, an, is a non significant contributor to the overall business model. The average property management company is operating an operating profit above about six percent, and maintenance markup revenue can definitely make a significant impact. Do you think that, in retrospect, if you were had been able to make up the delta to, to bridge the gap and get to the next funding round, do you think that it's more likely and viable that that would have need, had to take place purely in terms of absolute unit growth? Or could you see that revenue-wise also having been bridged through a greater contribution of uh, ancillary fees, whether it be maintenance, markup, et cetera? I mean, do, do you think that was a mistake kind of taking that, drawing that line
0: in the stand there? Um, I don't as it regards maintenance specifically. Um, I, I think that was just sort of for us Most of the classic maintenance fees just were incompatible with building an experience. It's really fair to customers. But on the broader point, I totally agree that ancillary services are going to be an important piece of the revenue stack for any any management company. I mean, our vision at scale was to be, you know, about 50-50 ancillary fees and and regular uh, management fee revenue. Um, And we had already started implementing some of that stuff, like, uh, you know, referrals from referral fees from realtors when customers bought new properties was a big one. But ultimately, at scale, I think there were opportunities for all kinds of things, insurance for both property owners and tenants. There's I mean, think about when a tenant is moving, there's an opportunity for cable, storage, mattresses, I mean, all the things that that someone needs when when they move. Um, Definitely one of the things we thought one of the big pieces that we thought of the long-term value that we were creating and that I think any property manager is creating is that you sit at the you are the main touch point for property owners and for tenants, both of whom need like a wide variety of services that all cost money and that all have referral fee opportunities there.
1: So I gotta push back on your feedback about maintenance and the implications. Yeah, I'm curious to hear market, your take that a maintenance market fee is not is, is fundamentally unfair. I get the the notion of The percentage being a lever that that could potentially incentivize inflating the overall fee, but from my experience, those are those aren't one to one. It creates the possibility for a perverse incentive. But incentives don't financial incentives don't always work perfectly as intended. Let's look at the traditional real estate agent, the brokerage fee, right? That's going to be a percentage, three, four, five percent of the transaction fee. Is the real estate agent really and genuinely primarily motivated? To max the sale price in terms of facilitating revenue to to them, probably not. In reality, velocity velocity is a way bigger factor. The number of deals that they can get done is going to be a more motivating factor than thinking that because it's a percentage lever, they're necessarily going to be motivated to sell for as much as possible. Um, so, I definitely see an opportunity with maintenance markup, and as long as people go in eyes wide open, it's the non-disclosures is where I think this industry gets a bad reputation. As it relates to um, the trust accounting piece, the finance, the money piece, did you guys own and fully build out like an owner portal, financial reporting? Did you guys use any off-the-shelf software? How did you manage the financial transparency piece?
0: Yeah, so that was something that that for the most part, we we completely built off the shelf. Uh, I mean, we were using... Uh, underneath, we were using a lot of, you know, developer services that make this stuff easier, like Stripe for payments, etc. Um, I think that's one of the big advantages of starting a tech company now is you have all these other building blocks. For the most part, those really weren't user facing, they were just kind of, um, you know, they were more kind of infrastructure. That was something that, frankly, our, our financial tools were fine. They weren't bad, but they also weren't a selling point. I think they were pretty average. Um, it was something that we wanted to really expand, uh, you know, down the road, I think a big I think a big opportunity in property management tech is that most property management tech is kind of still fundamentally organized around like different services that you do versus being more of like an asset management platform. But for a property owner, like, you know, you have a bunch of properties, like that's an important financial asset. And I think that property management software should be taking more cues from, you know, fintech, basically.
1: So in retrospect, was it a mistake to not use more off the shelf software. I think about not being technical myself, being in the tech business, but I'm not technical. I'm never uh, never tempted to open up the command line and start start coding, right? What I am tempted to do is to think about how we can use technology to augment a traditional service-based business to get more leverage. What do you think the opportunity may have looked like for somebody that takes more of the flavor, the tone of taking a traditional crusty service business model and trying to make it incrementally better through technology rather than rebuilding it from the ground up. So that may look like saying, Hey, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to use, uh, let's say, let's say property, right? Not, Not at folio, because the situation is so dire in terms of getting your data out, but middle of the road, let's say rent manager, rent manager is probably an even better example. They have a legitimate API, pull your data in out strip the system bare, have your own data repo somewhere else, have a combination of services, kind of like a, a retail microservices architecture, if you will, do you think that there's a legitimate opportunity there or do you take more of a, of a purist approach and think that even if it didn't work for you, this, the true scaling play does require you to build things from the ground up?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I think at a high, I, I'm going to have kind of a different spin on your question, which is I think at a high level, you're basically asking about when does it make sense to use what's out there, follow existing best practices, versus when it makes sense to kind of blaze your own path and reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Build versus buy, classic question. And, and I think that our lesson there was actually, I would kind of flip that on its head. So what I think the biggest mistake we made was, I think the, the software and technology was the area that one of the areas we were the best at. It was the areas that our customers always love, even up till the end but i think what we, our mistake was that there were too many areas where we tried to innovate or reinvent the wheel just in terms of pure operations and i think we would have been more successful if we had basically found a really well run property management company which is admittedly not easy to do but there are plenty of them out there i mean i <laughs> like i met a ton of them at pm grow summit uh, and, and was very impressed uh and found a really well run property management company and just basically like cloned sort of the traditional way of how they were running their operations, then layered our own our own technology and user experience on top, and then much more slowly innovated on the operational side, kind of a little bit of a piece at a time in the way that we could handle it. Um, and I, that's how I would do things for us differently. That said, I think for other people, the opportunity that you're talking about definitely could exist. Like if your strength is really operations, use an off-the-shelf management company software provider and really innovate on the, the operations side. I think both models can work. I mean, I think there's people who run a, really, a business that's really traditional in every way, but they really innovate on the sales and marketing side, right? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different ways. Um, I think it's just about what are your team's you know, main strengths and weaknesses.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. So now you're speaking to me, man. I think that's where the sweet spot is. What, what would happen if a progressive, more traditional property management company um, snagged you as a consultant and like, Max, hey, help us take this to the next level. We have budget, we're willing to spend, we're progressive. Where do you think you would be inclined to start with that more incremental approach? It's not trust accounting, right? It's not rewriting the trust accounting system. Where do you think you would start?
0: At a high level, it's more about user experience than individual features. I think when you look at a lot of property management software, one of the reasons it's a bit clumsy is that you know it's being made for, you, know, you look at like a Yardi or a Buildium, and they have to sell to All these different kinds of property management companies who do all these things these different ways and they all might need different obscure features and so you end up mostly competing on a long feature checklist versus like what tool is really the most pleasant to use and the owner experience is a real afterthought because if i'm you know yardy and i'm trying to sell to a property manager that property manager is probably competing with a bunch of other property managers who all also use yardy so if i build a better experience for property owners that doesn't really help me sell to my customers, the property managers better. Because if, if I'm a property manager and 30 other managers in my area are using the same software tool that I am, having a better owner experience in the software tool, it doesn't differentiate me because everyone else is going to get that same experience too. I think a focus on the owner experience basically at a high level is, is, is the way to go. And I think that's something that we did really right from a tech perspective, but just weren't able to back it up with the operational productivity necessary to make the complete package work well. Got
1: it. So what are the basic elements of a well-done owner portal in your mind?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, at a very high level, I think the way I think about it is trying to convey information in a way that lines up with how people actually think versus how a tool is designed. And so the great example I give of that is like going back to this idea that most management tools are segmented by service. So if you're an owner, maybe you can go look at payments. You can go look at maintenance, uh, whatever. But if you think about, you know, my classic example is, uh, you get a new tenant, right? So that means a tenant passes a screening, they sign a lease, they pay their rent, they pay their deposit, they move in. As a property owner, for me, that's like one story or one event. But in, in typical management software, how would I see that that happened? Well, probably someone leasing agent calls me. But other than that, it's like, all right, I've got the lease and background check in documents, maybe I go to my accounting and see the payment, it's like broken up into all these discrete pieces that obviously need to remain accessible as well. But I think communicating, kind of helping people understand the, the story of basically what is going on in, in their property is, is where there's a lot of opportunity.
1: Doug, story, man. I'm totally with you on that. What do you think about the opportunity with kind of positioning yourself more as a fiduciary Rather than a glorified gopher. I mean, obviously that's no brainer. You want to be a high authority, you want to be the trusted advisor, et cetera. But where did you find that the sweet spot was in terms of talking, kind of in more financial terms, uh, and engaging in that conversation, which can be an opportunity, but it can also overwhelm people if you're jumping right into cap rates to, to yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, I think at a very high level, the opportunity there is that for most property owners, property management is just a cost center. And if you can turn yourself into a profit center um, by by not just cutting costs, but delivering added value, like helping owners increase rents, I think that's a real opportunity. That was definitely another thing that I think was a real challenge of the Detroit market, is that in any kind of market where rents are lower, you know, for us, if we could help a property owner increase rents by five percent, which, you know, that's pretty good to get out of the. And I mean like not by you know doing capital improvements or anything, but just through the quality of our management if the rent was, you know, 850 bucks, that's going to be, you know, 40 40 bucks of rent a month, which is it's not nothing. Um, but it's not as significant as if you're able to generate those same percentage increases in in more higher end markets. Um, and I think that it made it I think in lower end markets there's not a ton you can do to be a profit center as a property manager. You mostly have to focus on being a cost center and that's a harder position to be in.
1: All right, my man. Well, I want to wrap up here by just kind of go run over, over some summary high level Thoughts on the big takeaways from the opportunity from one entrepreneur to another, I gotta say, you you went down the path, man. You went after a really, really hairy, hard problem. Like property management is just it's sticky and it's hard, and particularly doing it at scale. So kudos for attempting to take it on, kudos for being willing to talk about it publicly. If you were going to kind of sum up what you what you learned, some high-level lessons of what you think could be useful to the property management companies that listen to this podcast. What would it be?
0: Yeah, so there's there's one piece I'd like to touch on that hasn't come up so far, which I think was another big mistake we made that is a little bit more subtle, is that one of the things I would have done earlier in retrospect is just hire some people who were a lot more experienced people managers I think we've talked a lot about the practical elements of like managing properties but kind of as you're growing your team you know we were 18 by the end which isn't huge but it's enough that it's not just a few buddies in a room um, I think the people management element is also really important and was an area where we I don't want to say we didn't pay enough attention to it because we knew it was very important early on but I think we just ultimately didn't make I think you know having one person who had uh, run a, you know, customer success department at even a non real estate company for, you know, 15 years, like early on would have been really helpful. And it's something I would I would definitely do differently. So that's one of the big, one of the big lessons I would say is like, don't focus so much on the specifics of your business that you, you know, accidentally neglect kind of best practices for building a business in general.
1: Mm, that's good. Yeah, it's always a who question. The who, the who question is always higher order than the how or the what question. I appreciate that, man. Hey, if folks want to find out more about what you're doing
0: next, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, probably follow me on Twitter. That's at MaxNuss, M-A-X-N-U-S-S, where uh, I uh, say what's up with my life. And you can also check out my personal website. That's same, uh, M-A-X-N-U-S-S dot uh, com. Uh, not a ton there right now since I'm mostly just taking it easy and doing a little bit of consulting uh, these days, but that's how you can stay up to date with what I'm up to.
1: All right. Love it, man. Good. Well, that's some much deserved uh, time to decompress. Look forward to see what you're going to do next. Thanks again for coming on, man. Appreciate
0: it. You got it. Always a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.